Well, good morning and welcome. If you're visiting with us, we want to say thank you so much for joining us. This is the group that haven't caught the latest round of colds yet. So we want to say welcome to you. It's funny, when I wake up in the morning, I get all these texts from these families. Hi, we're sick, but we're going to bring our cereal next week or, you know, so... There is a lot going around, so thank you so much for joining us. This morning, we're going we're gonna to continue on with our series on the book of 1 Corinthians, and next week, we're going to be wrapping this up, and I'm really excited about the series after this. We're going to be looking at the idea of prayer, but that's a whole different conversation, and we'll get to that. But this morning, let's just recap what we talked about last week. So last week, we had this conversation about this idea of, of what it meant to be like kind of spiritually malnourished, right? And we look at these two quotes there. We had this idea about, you know, what, what was the idea of the Bible? What, what, what was it meant for, right? So remember, on chapter 14, there were three huge topics we looked at, right? So we looked at, what's the point of prophecy? Should we speak in tongues? And does Paul hate women? And if you've missed it, it's on YouTube, and uh, it's not as controversial as it perhaps may think, but it was, it, was, it was kind of a meaty chapter, right? But what was important is Paul has been trying to, in the church in Corinth, remind them what it means to be Christ followers. And the church in Corinth has, over its brief period of time, remember, by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, only three years have passed since he's planted it. So it's, it's kind of expected for the church in Corinth to be, how do we say this kindly? immature, right? So that's what he's dealing with. And so throughout the, throughout the book, throughout each chapter we've been looking at, Paul has addressed different issues, different aspects of where the church in Corinth has kind of veered off. And so we wrapped up by looking at uh, the last ch- uh, verse of chapter 14. And it says this, but be sure that everything is done properly and in order. Now remember I told you that the word that pa- Paul uses for properly is this idea of beauty. Now what I love about how Paul uses this word is that Paul envisions the gospel or the kingdom of heaven, that what it creates are those who act and behave, not beauty as an outward, but beauty as in the inward, right? And so chapter 14 was about, and in your Bibles, it may have the order of worship or proper worship or however it looks like. But what Paul sees it is when a, when a Christ-centered community functions properly, it is attractional to the, to the world around it. Right? So oftentimes, Western churches today, we want to be attractional by how great our music is or how cool the pastor is, if he's tatted or not. I'm not, in case you're wondering. Um, or, or, or whatever they might be. And, and again, that's all surface. Right? And unfortunately, Western churches are somewhat surface. What Paul says is when a Christ-centered community acts and behaves towards one another and the world as they ought to, that is like a, that is like a Holy Spirit gravity that we attract people to us, we attract people to who we are. So that was what you looked at last week. This morning, this morning's a doozy. So we're going to look at chapter 15. And chapter 15, if we look at 1 Corinthians as kind of a buffet meal of different topics, chapter 15 is going to be a steak dinner. Or for those of you who are vegan or vegetarian, it's a tofu dinner. Um, but however you look at it, that's what chapter 15 is going to be look at. But before we do that, every week we ask a, a question. And this morning's question is going to be kind of simple, but perhaps a little bit more difficult than you think. What is the gospel? So I said to you, could you please tell me what is the gospel? So fun fact, as most of you know, I've been... Uh, I've been uh, uh, given new opportunities as far as work goes. And this past week, I was at the Rave Hope, and I was working with my co-workers, and actually some of the, some of the uh, guests that arrived there. And I asked them this question, can you tell me what the gospel is? What's your definition of the gospel? And what was interesting is, it kind of fell upon the lines that I thought it would, right? So when we think about the gospel, if I said to you what, what the gospel is, oftentimes when we describe the gospel, 
It's about what God does to us. It's not wrong, but I would say to you it's not complete. So what Paul is going to do, actually, he's going to ask the church in Corinth what their gospel is, but he's going to show them an aspect of the gospel that they perhaps have forgotten. And I will say to you, it's absolutely what we've forgotten today because as everybody I talk to about, hey, what's the gospel? And by the way, I asked some guests too. You may not know this, but many of the people, many of the guests that come to the Ray of Hope, they're very spiritual. And you sit down at a table with them and ask them a conversation about God and faith. Well, there's one guy they call the preacher. And of course, I had to talk to this guy. And, uh, and so uh, well, one of the staff systems, is, hey, he says to the preacher, hey, preacher, what's a good word? And what he does, he opens a newspaper, looks at the first, ar- first uh, kind of uh, um, article, and just uses that as, as, as a kind of the, the bouncing off point, which, again, I can totally relate, right? So, of course, the other day I said, hey, preacher, what's a good word? Well, hour and a half later, I don't know what was happening, but uh, I got the good word for the next three years, I think, so it was pretty fantastic. I'm not sure quite biblical, but that's a whole different conversation. So when we talk about the gospel, what's interesting about the gospel today is when we, look, when we ask people, when there are surveys that go out asking Christians to describe the gospel, you, you're not surprised by this because we talked about this last week. Most people don't give a biblical understanding of the gospel. So an article or survey came across as this. A survey conducted by Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University find that American adults, and again, just so you know, we can beat up on Americans, and yes, rightfully, they deserve it, but it's also Canadians as well, too. Um, today, <laughs> hopefully no one's American here, uh, find that American adults today increasingly adopt a salvation-can-be-earned perspective. Okay, come on, come on, come on. Okay, um, a majority of Americans who describe themselves as Christian, 52%, also accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. This is back in 2020. So what this means to us is that a lot of people today feel that whatever Christianity is, whatever the gospel is, well, somehow I need to earn it that my salvation is somehow earned. Is that the gospel? I I would say probably not. But again, how preachers, teachers, how we have kind of um, talked about even that whole hashtag blessed, right? Uh, And again, I've I've gone on this rant before, so forgive me if you already heard this one, but I hate that hashtag, right? And I hate it when Christians use it, like uh, new car, hashtag blessed, or uh, in, in, in some sort of like on a beach somewhere, hashtag blessed. Or something new, you know, hashtag blessed. Which is kind of funny because when Jesus does a hashtag blessed, it's like, hey, when you've lost your job, hashtag blessed. When you've gone to the doctor's office and they told you you have something wrong with you, hashtag blessed. When you're weeping, hashtag blessed. Right? That's how Jesus kind of envisions hashtag blessed. But what we've done is in Western culture is we've really amalgamated this idea of when good things happen to me, God loves me. When bad things happen to me, God hates me. Right? And this idea of works-oriented is very much a part of how we look at the gospel. When I say the incomplete gospel, most churches proclaim, um, most churches proclaim looks something like this. Jesus died for your sins so you could go to heaven. So I said to you, what's the gospel? And this week when I asked people, I asked individuals to describe to me what the gospel was, that's what they said. Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven. And again, I understand that, but that, in that particular definition, I would say is perhaps even like a quarter of what the gospel might be. And again, if we are honest, the gospel doesn't extend past ourselves. It doesn't really get past anything more than what it does to me. And again, I grew up in the Pentecostal church. And for me, the gospel was, I don't want to go to hell. Just flat out, almost every sermon was, I was going to hell. And, and youth or Sunday morning. And, and you know what? To be truthful with you, back then, 
they were probably right, actually. Uh, you know, as a teenager, I was, um, I was a little rough around the edges and the insides and every part of me, okay? So uh, I was a little rough. So when someone says to me, you're going to hell, I'm not arguing. I'm like, yeah, you're probably right, you know? Uh, but what's interesting about that, though, is when I thought about the gospel, the gospel for me was, I just don't want to go to hell. Whatever hell is, Whatever, whatever you envision, whether it's Dante's Inferno, some you know m medieval uh, thing, or Walmart, you know whatever hell might be, like that's kind of what we envision, right? It's like that's what we think of. But for me, that's what the gospel was. I don't want to go to hell. So if I could be a good enough person, if I could not do the things my youth pastor tells me I'm not supposed to do, then I might, I might, I might make it through to heaven. But again, I'll tell you right now that that's not the gospel. So this morning, we're going to take a look at chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles or your electronic devices, crack them open. And as soon as you open them up, you're going to realize that this chapter almost has nothing to do with the gospel, but everything to do with the gospel. Because in chapter 15, Paul's going to bring up a topic that's very interesting for the first century church and also today. The, entire, the entirety of chapter 15 is all on one topic, the resurrection. So this morning, we need to answer four questions about the resurrection. And just so you know, this chapter is pretty dense, and I'm going to just kind of pull out a, a few things. We're going to look at the resurrection, but again, more in a kind of a surface way, because again, the resurrection is basically a five-year series, because it's, it's so, the, 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 here's a word you haven't heard in a long time, the profundity of it. Yes, hashtag profundity, is, is, is pretty immense. So there's four questions we're going to answer this morning that Paul's going to give to us. First of all, he's going to ask, he's going to answer the question, what is the resurrection. The second question he's going to answer is, what does the Bible teach about the resurrection? And the third one, and I'm explaining to you why this one is in there, is that can we trust it historically? Fun fact, that when Christians describe the Bible today, a lot of them you think of the Bible as myth or metaphor. It didn't really happen, but it is more like a morality play to teach us something. Especially with the resurrection. And I'll show you something a little bit later on. A lot of Christ followers believe that the Bible might be true-ish, but the resurrection is too fantastical. Like it it kind of ranks right up there with Job and the whale. Again, fun fact, it wasn't actually a whale, but that's a whole different conversation. So people think of the resurrection in these terms. So I had to take a, just, a, just a few slides to say to you that historically, you may not know this, but without the Bible, I could prove to you that the resurrection actually took place. And again, we'll get to that in a, in a moment. And the final question we're going to have to answer in regards to the gospel, because yes, in spite of what you think, I do have a point to this. Why is it, that the, why is it the most important part of the gospel? Because that's what exactly what Paul's going to say, that the resurrection, any description of the gospel, any understanding of the gospel, without an understanding of the resurrection, Paul would say to you, this is incomplete. Fair enough? Let's jump in here. Let's start off at, at verses 1 to 2 of chapter 15. Paul starts off this way. Now let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. Good news in certain translations, gospel. Just in case you're wondering, I use the NLT translation just because I like it. Uh, it's just, it, for me, it just kind of works a little bit better as far as the English goes. So that, in case you're ever wondering what scriptures, uh, what I use for the, my slides, NLT. Um, the good news I preached to you before. Um, you welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is these, this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something was never true in the first place. Pause. A couple of highlights here. One thing is that, of course, the good news, so he's going to use the gospel a couple of times. So whatever he's about to talk to you is centered around the gospel. We go, okay, interesting. But look what he says here, okay? 
It is this good news that saves you. So whatever topic that follows these next few verses, Paul says that this is important to your salvation. And we go, all right, so I'm, I'm going to take notice of what Paul says. Now let's take a look what he says. In verse 3 and 4, I pass on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as Scripture said. He was buried and was raised from the dead on the third day, just as Christians said. So if you take a look at what Paul describes the gospel, the first part is what most people get, right? Christ died for our sins, just as Christ said. And they go, yeah, that's good news. Jesus died for my sins. But again, as I said to you, Paul is going to say, Twice now in the previous verse, it says, this is the gospel. And for some reason, Paul seems to think that Jesus' death and resurrection are part of the gospel. And again, this past week when I asked people, hey, what's the gospel to you? Not one person mentioned the resurrection. And there's a reason for that, and I'm gonna, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, let's go on here. Verses 12 to 14. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are you, some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and, useless and your faith is useless. Interesting, right? So whatever the resurrection is and however it relates to the gospel, Paul is saying very clearly here, if you don't incorporate the resurrection into your gospel understanding, everything you talk about is useless. That's as, part of, that's as extreme of a word as I think you could probably put there, right? Useless, right? So Paul says that the gospel and the resurrection are intertwined, like, like without even, you can't even separate them in your breath. Because if you do so, if it doesn't happen, if this is not taking place, then everything that you believe is useless. Now, I'm going to show you a, a little passage from verse 51 to 53, because remember we talked a couple weeks ago about this idea of proof texts? Proof texts are verses that people will take out of context, and we'll say, look, this is what the verse is, therefore this is what Paul believes. One of the greatest examples of that is women in ministry. We talked about it. But we said to you that, you know, when Paul says women should be silent in church or women should be under authority, people go, see, these are proof texts that women are not allowed to so and so and so. But we unpacked that. And we said, that's not what Paul's saying at all. As a matter of fact, when you place this in context, in the larger context of this chapter, and even in the larger context of Paul's writing, in the larger context of the Bible, it's not even remotely true. But proof texts are these passages of scripture that people take out of context. So what's interesting about this next passage of scripture, people use this as a proof text for the rapture. And you guys know this already, and I've already told, it to, told you to this, that according to my understanding of scripture, the rapture is a fabricated theological issue that, that was kind of created. Well, actually, historically, we know exactly when it was created in the 1800s by a guy Anyways, that's a whole different conversation. If you missed that theology pub, you missed a lot. But point is, is that what Book of Paul says here. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will be all transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our immortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Now, again, this is basically the idea of the resurrection, but, again, people have taken this saying, oh, look, this is, this is, this is a passage of Scripture that talks about this idea of the rapture. And I would say to you that it's actually doing Paul a bit of a disservice because this is actually embedded in a chapter all about the resurrection, just as a fun fact. So let me recap what Paul's saying here. Paul's argument breaks down this way. If there is no resurrection, the Christ is still dead, 
If Christ is still dead, then the disciples have been lying about his resurrection. And if Christ is still dead, then we are all still in our sins. If Christ is still dead, then those who die are gone forever. And if Jesus only offers hope for this life, then what's the point? Kind of an important topic, right? Kind of an important topic. So remember I said to you, and the, the title for the series is Corinth, the Postmodern Church. And one thing I've said to you that whatever Corinth is going through, we are going through. The problems that Corinth has had, we are having. The things that they have forgotten, we are forgetting. I have not even been subtle about this. I'm not really one for subtlety. But I have said to you that we, when I read through the, the book of Corinthians, I see what we're dealing with today in the Western church. And, and all the areas of the, the church in Corinth has, has been kind of falling and failing. We as a Western church have been falling and failing today. And again, I'll show you in a moment, resurrection is a piece of that. So let's go, let's go through the four questions here. And I'm going to break down chapter 15. And I just want to kind of give it to you in a way that hopefully makes sense. And again, for those of you who've been part of my teaching, that's 50-50. Okay, so when we talk about that resurrection, what is the resurrection? So let me give you D.A. Carson's definition. I think it's, it's kind of a good one. It says this. By resurrection, I do not mean something like living forever in spirit existence or the like, but living, and again, in, living again in bodily mode after the body has died, coming back from the dead in real bodies, but ultimately in transformed bodies. See, when we think about the resurrection, the first mistake that Christians make about the resurrection is that only Christians will be resurrected. That's wrong. I'll show you in a second. Right? At the end of time, Every human being that has ever lived, no matter how they have died, will be resurrected. Every one of them. Now, why is that important? Well, it's interesting to me that uh, whatever God intended for eternity, there has been this idea within Christianity, and, and this comes a lot from whether it's cartoons or medieval uh, paintings, that eternity would be experienced in kind of a ghost-like form. Right? Again, for me... Right, when I was growing up, I felt like eternity, we'd be all be wearing white robes. And again, why we're wearing robes feels very uncomfortable. But still, we'd all be wearing white robes and playing harps in heaven. Right? That was the middle, middle Ages idea that was in my head. Right? And for most of you, heaven felt kind of a boring place, didn't it? Right? If that's what heaven is, I could maybe learn the harp in 30 years. What would I do for the rest 900, 900 million, billion, gazillion, whatever? Seven, like, like, what do I do for the rest of it? Once I've mastered the harp, I don't know, like, is it an electric harp? Is it a bass harp? I don't know, like, right? What, what happens after that? And the, the problem with that is most Christians have a very <sighs> infantile understanding of heaven and eternity because we think of it as ghost-like form. But that's not what the Bible intended. And, and really, one way to think about it is eternity in the flesh. Eternity in the flesh. That's a really simplified way of understanding what God intended. Resurrection is an event that will be for all of humanity at the end of time. Now, that is a really simplistic way of understanding resurrection, but that's important to understand what the Bible and what God's intending. Now, let's take a look at Scripture here. What does the Bible actually say about the resurrection? Now, fun fact, resurrection is actually first fleshed out in Judaism. Remember, I've said to you that at UCC, one of the things we try to do is we try to first understand the Jewish lens by which the Bible is written to. Remember, we Gentiles, and I think that's pretty much everybody here, we read the Bible, but we read it through a Western lens. That's fine, but the Bible wasn't written to us. 
It was written to Jewish people who understand the idioms, the the uh, metaphors, the um, the, the uh, religious practices. The Bible was written to them. So one of our jobs as Gentiles is first understand what it meant to be meant to Jewish people, and then extrapolate from that. Say, okay, what do we Gentiles take from this? Well, what's interesting is when you take a look at the idea of resurrection, this is actually fleshed out in the Old Testament. It's not actually, Paul doesn't introduce it, and Jesus certainly doesn't start talking about it. It's actually the prophets and those before him. So in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, now look what Daniel says. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up, some to everlasting life and some to shame and to everlasting disgrace. What does Daniel tell us? Daniel tells us that every person, no matter, and again, at Daniel's time, whether they were a follower of Yahweh or not, everybody will be resurrected. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, But those who die in the Lord will live, their bodies will rise again. Those who sleep on the earth will rise up and sing for joy. For life-giving light will fall like dew on your people in the place of the dead. So again, the prophet Isaiah proclaiming what the, the year of Jubilee, this idea of Yahweh's kingdom coming to earth, resurrection is a piece of it. Now remember I said to you that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. The book of Job was written after Genesis chapter 3, before Genesis chapter 4, right? There's so many reasons for that. You just, you're just going to have to trust me. I don't trust you. Well, that's, that's a whole different conversation. But the book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And yet, Job himself, we don't know how, but this is a tenet he believed. Look what it says in Job chapter 19, verse 26. And after my body is decayed, yet in my body I will see God. So Judaism had this very firm belief about the resurrection. That humanity, and again, not just followers of Yahweh, not just followers of Judaism, everybody will be resurrected at the end of time. So we go, okay, that's interesting. Now, take a look at Jesus. Uh, in John chapter 5, look what Jesus says here. And again, there's so much more about this that Jesus talks about. But I'm, I'm trying to be as, <laughs> as brief as I possibly can be. I'm trying to be brief in this. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 5. Don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. What is Jesus saying? Resurrection is not just for followers of Jesus. Eternity is meant to be experienced in the flesh, whether the flesh for, again, to use Jesus' words, the experience eternal life or experience eternal judgment. It is done in the flesh. Okay? This is, this is, this is, this was God's intention since the garden, okay? Sin came and broke this relationship, but that was his intent. Now, take a look at the book of Acts, because remember, the book of Acts is the story of the early church. So what did the apostles do when they went out to talk about Jesus? Well, again, to be brief here, just some examples. Consistently, the apostles come back to this idea of resurrection. When they talk about Jesus, when they talk about what happened on Palm the Cross, see, at this time in, 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 the, in the Middle East and the Mediterranean where the early church was starting to flourish, people had heard about Jesus' crucifixion. But what they did not hear about was his resurrection. So what was important for the apostles time and time again was to emphasize Jesus' resurrection. Now, there's a problem with this, and we see this problem in Acts chapter 17. Because... People who hear about Jesus' resurrection are like, really? Now, take a look at Acts chapter 17. 
This is when Paul, this is Mars, the Mars Hill Address, right? So Paul is in Athens. He's talking to Gentiles. And look what he says. He talks about the resurrection. Look at their response. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them. Imagine for a moment, there's an aspect of the church that's really unpopular in the culture today. Oh, I know that would never happen. And Christians stop talking about it. Oh, no, that would never happen either. Right? Uh, like, hmm. Okay, that's my filter kicking in. I'm not going to go there. Okay, um, it doesn't happen often, so you're welcome. But the point is, is a resurrection in, in, a, in the Greco-Roman world was actually kind of a joke. Now, why is that? What exactly is happening here that, that's taking place here? Well, I'm glad you asked because take a look here. The, the belief in the, in the Greek culture was it was very um, platonic, right? The, the philosopher Plato. Plato believed that the flesh was evil and that whatever is spiritual was unseen. So platonic thought was this idea of separating uh, flesh from spirit. So Plato and Greek philosophers believed that eternity, whatever that would look like, is in spirit form, translucent spirit form. And that was a prevailing thought and, and belief in the Roman world. So all of a sudden, these Jewish people come along and these Christ followers come along and they talk about bodily resurrection like, no, I don't think so. Every one of my philosophers, any one of the, the Greek gods have told us otherwise. Um, uh, Dr. Richard uh, practices this way. Both Greek and Jewish thought may have influenced the Corinthians to question the resurrection. Most Greek religions of Paul's day conceived of the afterlife as a spiritual, non-corporeal existence. Except for the Sadducees, the Jews by and large believed in the resurrection of the dead, of the, of the, of the uh, body, yet unbelieving Jews still denied in Christ's resurrection. Um, there is a group, you, you, you read this in the New Testament, called the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Without going too deep into it, the Sadducees actually didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed very much like their great counterparts. This is why they were always in, um, in conflict with the, with the Pharisees, is they believed that, hey, guess what? You got the average lifespan at that time was about 40 years. Have fun. You're not going to be here that long. I'm not wrong. So just eat, drink, and be merry, and sort of tomorrow will be dead. By the way, just so you know, after this world, there's nothing else after that. So the Jewish Sadducees and the Greek culture all looked at the resurrection and said, nah, I don't think so. Right? I, I don't think so. Now, just a little quick survey here uh, from the first one we looked at. It says this. Most Americans, again, let's not pick on Americans. Most Americans don't believe they will experience a resurrection of their bodies when they die. Putting them at odds with the core teaching of Christianity. As the reporters explained, only 36% of the 1,007 adults interviewed a month ago by the Scripps Survey Research Center at Ohio University said yes to this question. If you, believe, um, um, if you believe that after you die, your physical body will be resurrected someday. 54% said they do not believe and 10% were undecided. What we're realizing here within Christianity and within the culture is resurrection is actually kind of an odd topic now. Right? Most religions, and again, not to go through all of them, but basically believe that either A, it's you'll, after you die, you become nothing, right? nirvana, moksha with samsara, right? within that kind of concept, or you just, you just become a, a, a non-corporeal being and you float through space. So this idea of resurrection is actually kind of something that's, that's very kind of countercultural. Now, 
I want to show you something. And again, I'm taking this part. I was actually, I was, I was very much on the fence about even leaving this part in. But I want to show you something. Because when we talk about the resurrection and we talk about the early church, it's one thing to say, well, you know, those Christians, they had really weird ideas. But what's interesting is, it wasn't just Christians who had this weird idea. It was those observing Christians. And the sources I'm about to show to you, for the most part, 80% of the sources I'm about to show to you are actually sources that were hostile towards Christianity. Um, there are a number of ancient uh, classical accounts of Jesus from pagan, non-Christian sources. These accounts are generally hostile to Christianity. Some ancient authors denied the miraculous nature of Jesus and the events surrounding his life. I always find it interesting that I always want to look at what, my, uh, what enemies say about Christianity. This is why I love having conversations with atheists, agnostics, and other people from other religions, or even just different lifestyles. Not that I agree with them, I'm just, I'm just curious. How did you arrive at how you arrived? But what I also kind of find interesting is how the culture talks about Christians today. Remember we talked about the, the phrase evangelical. Remember I said to you that this phrase was once a, 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 a way of labeling Christians who, who were very, what we'd call Bible-believing, whatever that means. That's not what it means anymore. Evangelical has become a political idea. That even people who are not Christians might, might actually kind of would be under this umbrella. And so we have to kind of go, well, we need to now redefine this so that it's more kind of clear in what it believes. That's, that's neither here nor there. But the point simply is, is that when we talk about this idea of what Christianity is, what do our enemies say about us? Well, this is actually interesting about the first two centuries of Christianity. Remember I said to you before, and I'll just remind you, I am somewhat obsessed with the first 300 years of Christianity what we call the anti-Nicene fathers or the pre-Constantinian church. Why? It was the most raw and it was the most genuine. It's all been downhill since then, uh, basically, right? So it's like, okay, what did the early church think of and look like and what did their enemies say about them? So let's take a look here at some, what I would call uh, extra-biblical sources, historical sources. None of these sources are, um, um, are doubted. We, we have the ancient manuscripts. They're in museums all over the world, so they're not, like, that's not the part, right? What they say is actually kind of interesting. So the first one I'm going to show you here is something called the Nazareth Inscription. It's a marble tablet with Greek writing that has been dated to approximately 41 AD. Again, important date because this is kind of around the time when we think Jesus would have been crucified. The inscription is likely to abbreviated from an, an edict called a rescript from Emperor Claudius. And this is what the Nazareth Inscription says. But if anyone legally... Um, charges that another person has destroyed or in any manner extracted those who have been buried or have been moved with wicked intent, those who have been buried to other places, committing a crime against them or has moved sepulchre uh, sealing stones against such a person, I order that a judicial tribunal be created. You're like, what the heck? Well, in case you're wondering, in the Gospels, this is exactly what happened. What happens with Jesus? Well, they bury him. Then what happens then? Well, they put Roman soldiers in front of it, and they put a seal on the tomb. In other words, <laughs> you know, do not disturb. Well, why is this edict going out? Well, because remember what happens to the Roman soldiers. They freak out. They go back. Body's gone. Wait a minute. What do you mean the body's gone? The body's gone. Who moved the stone? Who broke the Roman seal? By the way, breaking a Roman seal, it's a death sentence. It's a death sentence. So this Nazareth inscription is kind of interesting because it kind of addresses one of the key points of the, of the resurrection story. Another one, a guy named Tacitus, AD 64, says this. 
Nero fastened guilt on a class hated for their abominations called the Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate, a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. What's interesting about Tacitus is Tacitus is not a Christ follower. He's actually, uh, he's actually reporting to the emperor because, again, this, uh, this whole Christian movement is kind of exploding, right? But that little phrase there, mischievous superstition, what could he be referring to? What mischievous superstition do they have? Resurrection. You know, what's interesting is when you look at Christianity towards all the other Greek and Roman religions, resurrection was unique. By the way, for somebody, if you study world religions, Resurrection is unique to Christianity. No other religion in the world talks about resurrection as the way the Christians do. None. Right? So what's interesting about this is Tacitus, by reporting to the Roman Empire, is kind of picking up on what the early church believed. Uh, another guy, we have Lucius of Samosa. Again, uh, Samosa. Maybe he made samosas. I don't know. They may be delicious. Uh, Samosata. So <laughs> samosas. That'd be great. Um, the Christians worship a man to this day, the, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. It was impressed upon them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. Again, this is not somebody who is um, sympathetic to Christianity, but again, they are picking up on the, the very tenets of this idea of the crucifixion and the resurrection. One more. A guy by the name, uh, actually, sorry, two more. One guy, a guy by the name of Josephus. You've heard of Josephus. Uh, what's interesting about Josephus is that Josephus uh, wrote this book called The Antiquities. And The Antiquities was a, an accounting of what was going on in the Judea to the Roman emperor. Now, just to be clear here, one of the things you have to know about reporting to the emperor, if you are caught lying to the emperor, you're dead. Okay? So, you ever wrote an essay or put together a resume? Eh, you may have been, you know, like just... Maybe your qualifications were just a little bit more overly generous to who you are. Well, that's lying. And if you said that to the, re if you want to work for the Roman emperor and they did like a, did they checked all your references? If you lied, you're dead. What's interesting about Josephus is Josephus has a very clearing account of, of Jesus. And people have looked at this and gone, well, that, that, this has been redacted, it's been changed. Except for the part where we have multiple sources who kind of affirm what Josephus write. Again, you don't have to agree with what he wrote. You just have to know that this is actually what he wrote. And it's interesting as well, too, that Josephus wrote another book as well, too. Um, one, one was uh, called the, uh, the Jewish War, which is, which is the, um, have you ever heard of this uh, Jewish uprising called Masada? Right? Josephus documents that. Nobody looks at that going, well, that was wrong, because we have historical proof that this is true. Now look what Josephus says about this idea of Christianity. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprisingly, surprisingly feats, he was Christ. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up on their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. Now, please understand something. I don't expect you, if you're not a Christ follower, if you are somebody here this morning, perhaps, or still skeptical of, of Christianity, I don't want to say this to you, that this is proof that Christianity is true. What I do want to say to you is one of the reasons why Christians could not get away from talking about the resurrection, because everybody else in the culture was talking about it. One last source, a guy named Origen, he's quoting somebody, he says this, 
Jesus, while alive, was of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed his hands had been pierced by nails. Now, the reason I took some time out to say this, because again, Christians can look at the Bible as myth and metaphor and say, well, did it really happen? Is, is God just trying to give us a, a, a moral lesson and that way we don't have to worry about it? Well, as I showed you through the book of Acts, the apostles were not apologetic about talking about the resurrection. They thought it was kind of important, even if the culture thought it was kind of weird. But those who hated Christianity, those who were against Christianity, they saw this as well too. So again, whatever you think about the resurrection, however you frame this in your mind, you need to understand that the early church thought this was, was key to their faith, but also the culture that was looking at Christians, whether they agree with it or not, they thought it was kind of important as well, too. Now, let's answer the final question. Why is this so important? Why does Paul say that unless the resurrection takes place, the gospel isn't true? Um, two, uh, two commentators, uh, Hector Cervantes, says this. For the Apostle Paul, the resurrection of Christ was not simply a miraculous event. In addition to being miraculous, Paul saw a resurrection as the lens by which we interpret Scripture. Now, this is kind of interesting. What Hector is saying, and, and I actually believe he to be absolutely correct in this, is a resurrection isn't like one of these miraculous events. We go, oh, look what Jesus did. We go, resurrection is actually the lens by which we, we examine all of the Bible. I've showed you in the Old Testament. I've showed you in the Gospel. I've showed you in the book of Acts, and now I'm showing you in 1 Corinthians. This is a topic that is you know, repeated time and time again. Remember, in the Bible, repetition shows emphasis. The more repetition, the more emphasis, the more we kind of go, this is important. Okay? This is important. Um, Robert, Robert Defenbaugh says this, Ever we look in 1 Corinthians, we can see the fruit of this doctrinal error of rejecting the resurrection of the dead. This is important. Okay? If resurrection is so important, what's, what's going on here? So let me show you something here. I think one of the things we have to realize as, as human beings is that death is a door every human being on the planet must walk through. This has become absolutely real for us during the pandemic. Right? I think it was absolutely ghoulish for certain news sources to have a, a, like, like a death count at the bottom of the screen. What did that do? Well, it, it made people afraid, first of all. And again, I'm not saying that there wasn't some, some validity to that, because again, this was new. We didn't know what was going on. We we're all freaking out. But what it also did, too, was it just made people freak out. But you know who else was freaking out during this as well, too? Christians. And not, not that we are, we, 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 we really kind of uh, are, are like superhuman or we, we, you know, we look death in the face and go, ha, ha, ha. But there's a part of us that should realize that this life is not the only life that there is. The mortality rate of the living is... 100%. It's 100%. Right? Anything that is alive at one point in time will not be alive. Spoiler alert. Okay? And so what's interesting about this is that as human beings, I think in the last couple of years, we have been, our, our frailty has been exposed. And I think that's actually a good thing because I think Western culture has this idea that um, we can live forever. And I know, you know, whether it's Elon Musk or somebody else, they're actually kind of pursuing the idea of living forever, but we really can't. Right? We, just, we just can't. And so 
there is this idea that we, we are frail in this way. Death stalks us, haunts us, and reminds us that we, despite our best efforts and lies, are weak and frail, and our outcomes are out of our control. Remember the phrase I say, control is an illusion? Control is an illusion. doesn't matter what you think about life. doesn't matter what you think is going to happen. You don't know, right? Loss of health, loss of finances, loss of relationship, loss of pick, your, pick whatever. Control is an illusion. So what does the resurrection have to do with this? And only one person in all of history has walked back through the door and said, fear not. See, what the resurrection teaches us is that it takes Jesus from just being a teacher, just being a man, and it kind of, it transcends him to something that no other human being in history has ever experienced. Right? Um, there's an interesting book that came out a couple of years ago. And the book was kind of cataloging. I, I read it, and I, I apologize. I can't remember the title. But it was, it, was, it, was, it was talking to people who died and came back to life, whether on an operating table or something like that, right? You know, they, they died for like 30 seconds or, or whatever, and they were revived. And some of these people have these incredible stories of what happened in that brief amount of time. And so this, this author decided to have a conversation with these individuals. Freakily, that's such a word, they all have kind of very similar experiences, even though they're separated by time and space and all that kind of stuff, but they all have kind of a very similar story. Now, please understand, I'm not saying, I'm not validating that at, 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 in any way, shape, or form, but I think what's kind of interesting is, is the predominant uh, patterns that kind of emerged is that nobody came back and said, oh yeah, when I died for 30 seconds, there was nothing. They all had this idea that there was something after this life. So whatever we think about when we think about this idea of Christianity is we have to realize that this life is not all that there is. Now, why is this important? Let's just remind ourselves of the four things that Corinth is going through. This is, these are topics we've been talking about every week, right? Corinth is sensual. We ha we, we've had this conversation, but remind ourselves, right? The church in Corinth is living in this time where the sensuality, not just in physicality, but also in food and in wine, Sound familiar? The culture is obsessed with that. Corinth is immature. Been there, done that in far Western culture. Corinth is struggling with transformation, right? And finally, Corinth is trying to blend the gospel and culture. Why does Paul say to them, why are you rejecting the resurrection? Well, that's Greek philosophy imposing itself upon their Christianity. Here's where I think it kind of gets to it. Why does Paul take an entire chapter of mind, go over and teach about the resurrection? For 14 chapters, Paul has scolded, argued, and taught the Corinthians church about belief, behavior, sex, community, and almost every topic in between. And I think the reality behind the, re the resurrection comes down to this idea that uh, a Greek philosopher by the name of Epicurus, Epicureanism, you may not know this phrase, but you do know this, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Right? Christians have forgotten that the finite, this world that we live in, is not all that there is. But yet we live like it, don't we? We live like there isn't something after this life. And I think the church in Corinth is absolutely living like that as well, too. And just to be clear, this is also a theme throughout the Bible. Jesus talks about this. The writer of Ecclesiastes, I taught on Ecclesiastes like five years ago or six years ago. I don't know, a long time ago. I've got to come back to it because this book is so fun. 
Because the writer of the book says so many things that seem like very anti-Christianity, anti-Judaism, right? Like, he talks about, yeah, you know what? This life's kind of boring, so, you know, you should probably have some wine. Or, you know, maybe laughter is a good way to kind of r- remind you that you're going to die. Or, you know, like, it just he says all these topics. There's a reason for it, but it's interesting, right? But Jesus and the writer of Ecclesiastes all say the same thing, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is true if there's no resurrection. This is true if there's no life after this life. See, I think Christianity and Western culture has kind of embedded itself at the center of culture, which culture goes, "Uh uh-uh, and they're now kicking us to the fringe, which again, I like. But I think Christians have forgotten something. That in every aspect of our lives, there is this temporary nature of it. Right, the 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 New Testament writers use uses phrases like we're 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 um, we're sojourners, or the 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 better modern way of saying it, we're refugees. Right, what's a refugee? A refugee is a person who flees their home because of something that's going on, political war, so, you know, again, a variety of topics. And again, in our world today, we're seeing it all over the place. Well, <laughs> we're kind of refugees in the sense as well too that you know we've been kicked out of the garden. The kingdom of heaven has not yet arrived, but yet our job is to try to kind of create it now. But as refugees, one of the things that's really important, so when uh, my family immigrated from India to Canada, uh, because I was one year old when I came over, uh, the transition for me was almost like nothing, right? And my dad tried to remind me of that constantly, right? But my sisters, who were teenagers, later teenagers, my older sister, Veronica, uh, I think she was like uh, 17, 18. Could you imagine immigrating to a country at that age? Going to high school at that age? Right? And just so you know, <laughs> my, our parents made our clothes. Right? That's just, that was just reality. And as a kid at my age, like, you know, going to school, it, I didn't care, right? I, I, was, I was mostly feral anyways. It didn't really matter, right? But my sisters, they tell stories about this idea. I remember one time my mom telling me a story about going to the grocery store for the first time. Could you imagine going to the grocery store for the first time and, and just trying to navigate items you saw in India to in Canada? It's interesting. So um, in one of my new jobs, I've met this uh, gentleman uh, who just arrived from Nigeria two weeks ago. And now he's trying to navigate him and his wife in, in, in Canada. So he's been asking me all these questions because uh, he just, you know, uh, him and I have been talking and all that. And so he's, he, he's learning his job along with me. But he's asking me all these questions like, you know, he's saying, oh, you know, what should I do with this? What should I do with that? And so I've been trying to help him because, of course, right? But I, I can see this idea of him trying to, you know, navigate Canadian culture coming from Nigeria. Of course. But see, Christians are trying to navigate Western culture with the values of Middle Eastern religion. You know, Christianity has been called many things, but what you have to understand, it's first and foremost a Middle Eastern culture, a Middle Eastern religion. People call it, well, it's a, it, you know, it's a white colonial you know, religion. That may be what it has in the Middle Ages, but its, its inception was in the Middle East. So what are we trying to do? We're trying to remember this as well, too. So what, why is this important to the resurrection? So what you have to understand, sorry, is Christ's resurrection plu- proves his claims but also fulfills God's plan. The Old Testament tells us this. What's God's intent? 
Not that we float through eternity in, in translucent bodies, right? Not even George Lucas gets that right. But instead, that we experience eternity in the flesh. Jesus' resurrection tells us that he wasn't like everybody else. And if he's not like everybody else, then what he said must be true. The resurrection teaches us that God's intent in the garden and in the future is that humanity enjoy eternity with him in the flesh. And that that same flesh which we bear today is but a shadow of what God intends. One person who kind of really gets this right is uh, N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright has a great quote on it, and you really, I could have just showed it at the beginning and just said, amen, and you're probably wishing I did, but I have to wait for the, put the best to last. N.T. Wright, in his book, Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, the Mission of the Church, says this. It's a big quote. Don't worry. I'll read it. It says this. The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What, do, what you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needing, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether, as the hymn mistakenly puts it. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. See, what I love what N.T. gets here, and one thing I want to remind you, the reason why the resurrection is, is core to Christianity, because we get to live it right now. See, the flesh that you can perhaps sometimes hate because if you catch a cold or COVID or the frailty of it or whatever, and we haven't even talked about the other part of it as well too, maybe our desires lead us into ways, that, and you know, sometimes we can look at ourselves and go, oh, you know, why do I have these habits? Why do I have these impulses? And we can kind of hate that part of us, and I understand that. But the flesh was what God intended for us to be able to enable God's kingdom on the earth right now. In the flesh, you can serve the poor. In the flesh, you can serve one another. That is how you redeem the flesh from what it could be, and that is a self-indulgent Western kind of, uh, let, let me just indulge it whatever I want. Let's use all my resources for myself. But instead, we get to use this gift that God has given us to serve other people, to serve one another, to let the world know that there is more to this than they're just simply you know, trying to make it through this life to the end and then leaving it all behind. Let me close with uh, the last verse. Uh, verse 58 says this. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Um, I kind of like that immovable part, right? Be strong and immovable. Why does he say immovable? Culture constantly wants to push on us. Culture, culture constantly wants to move us into their direction. And as Christ followers, we get to say, no. Our values are from a different place. Our values are transcendent. And just because culture is shifting in this direction, moving that direction, doesn't mean we get to move that way as well. Immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Now remember, Paul starts off at the beginning of this chapter saying, if the resurrection doesn't happen, then your faith and your belief is useless. And at the end of the chapter, he says, by the way, your flesh what you do now, when you do it for God, 
It's not useless. I think it was uh, Martin Luther who said, I've held many things in my hands and held them tightly, and I'm paraphrasing. The only things that I have kept are the things that I've given to God. I, I kind of like that. There's so much of my life that I think of just acquiring and consuming, which is what Western culture is all about, consumption. But the only things that will be transcendent to this life are the things that I do for God, the things I put in His hands, the, the gifts that He has given me that I give back to Him in serving others. That's what the resurrection teaches us. That one day, all of humanity will be resurrected. And as Jesus says, some to everlasting life with him, others to everlasting judgment. Again, whatever that looks like. The flesh isn't what we flee. The flesh isn't what we hate. It is a gift that God has given us to serve other people, to, to give our lives away as servants to a culture that increasingly is hostile towards us, but also confused by our behavior. The resurrection teaches us that Jesus was true and that ha as he has led us and as he's taught us, that is for us today. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. As we do every week, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. I just want you to have a moment to meditate, to reflect. I'm not going to ask you to do anything but I do want you to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And that speaking should look something like this. As we go through our daily lives, as we wrestle with our place in the world, it's important to remember that the resurrection, living for God in the flesh, happens right now. And the question we ask ourselves, are we doing so? Just like the church in Corinth, we have to reorient, realign ourselves when it comes to the things of the kingdom. I don't know about you, but I find myself distracted. I find myself lazy when it comes to things of the Lord. And I have to remember the flesh that God has given me that sometimes I hate is given to me for a purpose. Because what I do with it now, I will also do with it in eternity. That's why the resurrection is key to the gospel. The gospel isn't what God does to you. It's what God has done to you, but will also do through you for those around you. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for this beautiful gift that you've given us. Jesus, I thank you that you did rise from the dead. And not just in a metaphorical, mythical way, not in a, hey, it's not a great uh, moral story, but instead, historically and physically, this happened. Your followers in the early church, Lord, they couldn't stop talking about this, even though the culture looked at them and thought they were crazy. Jesus, please forgive us today for forgetting that our flesh, our resources, our time, our talents, our treasure, they belong to you. Holy Spirit, please help us to release to you what is rightfully yours. Help us to have the resurrection as a key piece of our understanding of the gospel, that in the flesh, right now, right here, we can use the gifts, use the resources that we have 
for the kingdom. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would convict, challenge, comfort, so that we are able to be, Lord Jesus, your hands and your feet in a world that desperately needs to see what authentic Christianity looks like. Oh Lord, help us to be that visible representation of the kingdom of heaven in this world. I ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.